I'm offering you nothing short of hope in the midst of a global onslaught of fear. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the market totally cornered on life itself. And you, you, though you are currently dead in your sin, my friend, may come to life. You've been looking for life everywhere else and you haven't found it in anyone else. It's only in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Scroll no further. You found it and you found the only hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though you're currently dead in sin, like every Christian used to be, you can be brought to life just like we have been. Come on in. The gospel is beautiful. I'm offering you nothing short of hope itself. Join Highlands Community Church in our book-by-book journey. We're currently in the book of Romans. And today, we look at chapter 7 into the beginning of chapter 8. Paul has built this biblical case for several chapters now. In chapter 6, we talked about the sins of Christians. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a different light today in chapter 7. And we're going to cover a lot of ground, but there's a reason for that. I'm going to spoil the ending real quick. Paul is going to describe Jesus' work on the cross as a sin offering. And before we dive into that, I want you to have a proper Old Testament context for what that is. When we taught the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, we were always pointing forward to Jesus from the text and pointing forward to the New Testament from the text. Now, studying a New Testament book, I want us to briefly point backward to the Old Testament just to show the background, show the origin, because the word sin offering doesn't register register with us if we don't understand what Paul is evoking from the Old Testament when he comes from the book of Exodus and Leviticus. In Exodus chapter 29 verses 10 through 14, you're going to see one of these prescriptions for like how a sin offering was to be carried out. Okay? I'm going to warn you, it's super brutal and it should be. Don't look away from the brutality of what's being described here because remember This is what Paul's talking about when he describes Christ's work on the cross as a sin offering. In fact, Christ's work on the cross is the efficacious fulfillment of what this ceremonially merely represented in shadow. Here is Exodus 29 verse 10. You are to bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the bull's head. Slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and apply it to the horns of the altar with your finger and then pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat on them and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh, its hide and its waist outside the camp. It is a sin offering. In our study on tough texts, we talked about why, why these Old Testament books go into such grotesque detail regarding what to do with even the animal's waste for crying out loud. All right, there's a purpose behind that. There's an intention behind that. Some of these actually serve pragmatic purposes, even forming soap in which ceremonial robes were washed thousands of years before the advent of soap as we know it today. Now, this was deeply, richly, and intentionally symbolic As they put their hands on the head of the bull, they were imputing this bull symbolically with the sins of all the people. And then, then that bull symbolically imputed, filled with representing the sins of all the people was slaughtered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
This is a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. That's why now in the book of Romans, when we see Jesus described as a sin offering, he is the fulfillment today of what was foreshadowed then. You'll see sin offerings also in the book of Leviticus. When a priest would sin intentionally, knowingly, meaning like he knew what the law said, but he was overcome with temptation. He gave in in a moment of weakness and does something he ought not do. The prescription was to sacrifice a bull according to Leviticus 4.3. That was a sin offering. Also, when a leader in the community of Israel would sin unintentionally, meaning he accidentally violated the law without realizing it, he was to sacrifice an unblemished male goat according to Leviticus Four, verses 22 through 24. Then the sins of the whole community were projected upon a bull that was sacrificed to represent an atoning sacrifice, a, a sin offering on behalf of the community according to Leviticus 4, verses 13 through 15. That's the Old Testament foreshadowing of a sin offering. And now Christ is the New Testament fulfillment of all sin, uh, the, the, uh, the, the atoning work for all sins, for all who believe in him for all time. Now, let's look at the text together. Let's read Romans chapter seven. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, okay, he's gonna give us an illustration now from marriage. He's not about to start teaching about remarriage after being widowed, he's about to give an example of something bigger, okay? A married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. One time, I went to a funeral wake and was utterly unprepared for what I encountered, okay? The, when you're a pastor, you kind of get used to these things, and you, you sort of learn how to act in, in a difficult setting. Uh, people who are grieving are very easy to offend, and so you have to walk a, a high wire of sorts. If you show up at the wake and you smile too much, that's offensive. If you don't smile at all, then that could be unsettling for them. The, the trick is to, is to maybe raise the corner of one side of your mouth just 10 degrees while kind of furrowing your brow just a little bit. You have to, you have to really read the situation because when counseling and shepherding people who are deeply hurt well death is fresh especially when oftentimes pastors are invited to go visit somebody who's just lost someone that day It'd be very volatile emotionally and i mean like you're expected to be the one who knows what to say so it's a it's a difficult tightrope to walk but i was utterly unprepared when a guy that i knew was watching his favorite college football team play and he got so frustrated with them that he died right there in his chair. Now, he's my friend, so I can say this. Like, 
that's a little bit funny. <laughs> then when I went to the wake, his widow was like obviously trying to hide her giddiness. I was not prepared for how to deal with that. I mean, it's altogether tragic, obviously, but it's also a little tiny bit funny, let's be honest. She was free. She was free in regard to the law. Biblically, according to Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament and then used by Jesus and clarified in the New Testament, she is biblically, she's now free from what the law teaches. Remember, in this opening of chapter 7, Paul is not suddenly deviating now for something completely different. Right now, it's not a Monty Python breakaway moment. It's using the illustration of remarriage after being widowed. He's using this as an illustration to show two levels of application. One is individual, the other is corporate. On an individual level, we are all free from the law of sin and death. Our old sinful selves have died. Okay, once somebody is dead, it doesn't matter how many times they broke the law or the extent to which they broke the law, they cannot be charged with their former crimes. They cannot possibly be punished for them because the old you is dead and gone. All right? Likewise, as the text says, you are then free to remarry again. That's the biblical standard, actually. If, you're, if you're, your spouse dies, you are biblically eligible and free to remarry. And what he is encouraging us to do now, having died to sin and death, is to now be remarried, free from our legal obligation, our biblical obligation to our former selves. We are now free to remarry Christ, who in the book of Ephesians, as we saw, is the bridegroom of the church, the one who resurrected from the dead and through whom we're called to bear fruit for God, as opposed to the fruit for death that was coming about through our sinful selves. See verses four and, verses, and verse five. The individual level describes each of us as now widowed to our sinful selves and now eligible to be remarried now to Christ who is alive. But it also, it also speaks from, from a corporate standpoint, from a corporate level that all of, the, all of the believers of God now collectively are free from the law and now married to Christ, the ultimate bridegroom. It's important that we don't always interpret scripture on an individual level. All right, as I speak to you now especially, now especially, it's easy to misconstrue it because it feels like a private conversation between me and you, but it is not. It is not. All right, this is, this is the body of Christ gathered in our homes collectively at the same time to hear the same word and abide in the same spirit of the same fellowship. This is even difficult given the number of services that we have at Highlands Community Church. I mean, we currently have six total services and with the growth that we're seeing, praise Jesus, we might have to add more, you guys. But that can also lead to a misconstruing experience. You can think that the, all of Highlands Community Church is only the given service that you go to. So not only is it easy for us to think of this as, as though it were individualistic and that's incorrect, we could even think of it as though it were all of the people who are with us in our given service and that's not correct either. God is doing tremendous things that spans thousands upon thousands of people. Praise God for what he's doing here. I mean, we have seen several thousand people reached because of this season that we never reached before. Praise God, they're gonna join us through Discover Highlands. Now, there's, there's something in this text that I think applies directly to those 2,000 or so of you who are joining us that we've never been able to meet in person before. Did you see what he says about our belonging to one another? In verse four, that you may belong to one another. I think that's beautiful. That you belong here. You belong in the family of God. You don't just receive this as though it were 
free counseling one-on-one. No, 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 no. We also interpret the word of God corporately as a part of the body of Christ on the earth. The church, the one redemptive strategy that Jesus gave to save the souls of all who are lost. That's us. There is more to your redemption than your own self-improvement, friend. There is fruit to be born through your ministry, and there's somebody at Highlands Community Church who needs counsel that you are better equipped to provide than I am, than anybody else on our leadership team. This is, this is a body of believers, a priesthood of believers. We are ministers mobilized unto the gospel and equipped by the word of God for works of ministry. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. Now get to work. That's the idea. I'm not the one who does all the ministry here. Rather, my job is to equip you to do ministry. We belong to one another here. If you're feeling isolated and alone, you've never been a part of a community of believers at all, I want to invite you to be a part of the family of God. You can go to highlandscc.org slash discover hyphen highlands or just find the Discover Highlands logo on our webpage. This is also a beautiful explanation for how we are freed from the Old Testament letter of the law. This is a common question that comes up culturally. Why do Christians not adhere to Old Testament law? Why are you picking and choosing what you believe and what you don't believe? If you're going to practice coherent Christianity, why not eat? Why not abstain from shellfish, for example? This is a beautiful text. Romans 7, 1 through 6 is a beautiful example of how we are freed from the old letter of the law. Now, look with me, verses 7 through 13. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. There's another absolutely not statement. We talked about those last week. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. We went to Jamaica on vacation several years ago. And we heard about this epic restaurant, Rick's Cafe. It's right there on these cliffs overlooking this beautiful bright teal water. And our cab driver on the way there was, was warning us. He's like, look, stick to the tourist jumping ledge. Okay, there's this little ledge at the base of the cliff with a safe staircase going all the way down to it. You can jump off a few feet, boop, into the water. But there's this higher sheer cliff ledge that is, that is far more dangerous, and way higher up. And he, our cab driver kept saying it over and over again, don't jump off the high cliff. Don't jump off the high cliff. The people who jump off that, a lot of them live here and they, they practice it and they do it all the time. Do not jump off the high cliff. And I looked at my bride, Jessie, and she looked at me like, oh no. She knew exactly what was going through my head. I was like, I've got to do it. And then we got there and there was this sign that also kind of warned tourists not to jump off this ledge. Like, please use the safer one. And I was like, no, I've got to do it. I see the sign. I must, I positively must jump off this cliff. It was the very first thing we did. I jumped off the cliff and I did it 
four times in a row without incident. It was great. It was really, really fun. But then the fifth time came, and I started to rotate back just a little bit as I was falling through the air. And then I landed wrong on the water, and the backs of my legs were deep purple for days after that. What is it about me? What is it about anybody like me? It was a sin nature. You just like see this sign prohibiting something. You're like, I've got to do that now. That's the way it feels. That's what, that's what the law does. It seizes the opportunity to, to make us want to exercise our free will and impose it over that. To, to, to see a law, it says, don't do this thing. Like Paul's example here, do not covet. He's like, ah, oh, man, this produces coveting of every kind in me now. Just this law forbidding it appeals to the sin nature that every one of us has. And it makes us want to violate it because it feels like an imposition upon our freedom. And so we try to violate it. It, was, it never works out. I mean, it might work out, you know, one or two or three or four times. But by the fifth time, you're going to get whooped, okay? Ask me how I know. <laughs> Is there some part of you that, like Augustine describes, just wants to sin willfully because God forbids something? Would you recognize your reflection in this text? Paul is leveling with you here. He's leveling with me here. He's saying that the law against covetousness inspired covetousness in him. Now the law is good. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. He goes through great lengths in verses 12 through 13 to emphasize it's not that the law became a bad thing. No, no, the the law is holy and righteous and good. It's just that my sin nature became all the more obvious in contrast to the law of God. It's because of that law of God, I see what the standard for good and evil is. And then in aiming for it, I miss the mark. That literally is what the word sin means. It is to miss the mark. And the mark is set, the target is established and painted, the bullseye established by the law of God. And by the law of God, we've all missed the mark in going for it. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us, doesn't matter what the particular category of sin you struggle with, if you would, every one of us has missed the mark. Every one of us has sin. Aren't you grateful that Jesus is the sin offering then who pays the full price for these sins of ours? Verses seven through 13 are important. He asked the question, did the law, did, the, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. He points out that sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Christians, this is a very, very biblical way to share the gospel. Use the Old Testament law, those those Old Testament laws that we're sometimes embarrassed of, that we try to avoid or try to completely sweep under the rug. Don't do that. That's antinomianism, right? Etymologically break down the word antinomianism. It is against the law. No, no, no. Use the law of God in the Old Testament as the standard for righteousness and then use the New Testament grace to show how every one of us may be atoned for our violations of these laws. Use the Old Testament law to provide juxtaposition and therefore appreciation for New Testament grace. Law and grace. It's a beautiful way to explain the gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 through 26. Here, Paul also wrote the book of Galatians is gonna answer a question that might come up from this. What exactly did Paul mean when he said sin might become sinful beyond measure? All right, listen to Galatians. Why then was the law given? 
It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, with the capital S, that's Jesus, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Is that you today? Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Happy adoption day. If this is the first day that you've come to believe in this. That sin would be revealed as sinful beyond measure speaks to the ultimate consequences of our sin. It's not just the first time you violate the, the sign, the second time you ignore it, the third time you ignore it, the fourth time you ignore it. It's ultimately even beyond the fifth time that you ignore it because ultimately you keep doing this enough times, keep violating that sign, ignoring that sign at the top of the cliff enough times, eventually, eventually you're gonna die. It's, it's a statistical reality. It's, it's the truth of every sin. Like we saw in the previous chapter, ultimately, ultimately the wages of all sin is death. Sin is not just that one violation. It's sinful beyond measure. It ultimately leads to the grave. It produces death in every one of us. Now, look at verses 14 to the end of the chapter. I've taught about this before, so I want to teach it and then go straight into the following uh, chapter, the opening verses of chapter 8, and deliberately so, deliberately so, with good reason. You'll see why, but begin with this text with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin and parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. We've taught this before right here at Highlands Community Church. You can see our sermon archive, but we've never taken a running start directly into the opening verses of the subsequent chapter. I get it. I know. I understand. Like you could slow the pace of our book-by-book book journey through the Bible down so much that we're like, you know what, guys? We're gonna take a syllable of Romans every 50 years and like we'd still not exhaust the text. I get that. But this was in its original intent a letter that was read in its entirety in one sitting. 
It's possible to take too long. It's possible to fragment the text down so much that you fracture its intent. You fracture the tension being built up, dying to self in chapter 6, to the release of that tension in chapter 8. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can fracture the opening thought with its resolution later. And what we struggle with when we teach only chapter 7 and don't bulldoze our way into chapter 8 is that we leave people with this lingering hopelessness, who will rescue me from this body of death? And we don't arrive at chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's do that. Paul, having spilled his guts about his own struggle, I believe as a believer wrestling with his unredeemed humanness, the simultaneity of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, calling him to sanctification, increasing Christ's likeness, and then his sin-stained flesh, his innate proclivity with which he was born onto sin and rebellion, the desire to jump off the cliff at Jamaica precisely because there's a sign that says, don't jump off this cliff. Man, I sound so dumb, sorry. Chapter eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See how important it is to arrive at that proclamation of freedom after this description of the struggle? What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. We talked about its Old Testament roots. In order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Are you struggling with cyclical sin? Don't put up reminders that say, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Because that's just gonna trigger more and more like, what Paul's describing here, reminders of sin. Instead, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Colossians 3, set your mind on the spirit. Walk according to the spirit. Focus on Jesus. Ask him to deliver you from temptation. Isn't that exactly how he taught us to pray in the Lord's model prayer? Verse six, now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Man, doesn't that sound so much better, my skeptical friend, than what you've been struggling with? I know you don't have peace. Come on, be honest and be real. Doesn't this sound great? Doesn't this sound beautiful? If you're enticed by this, you're absolutely right. That's the spirit of God. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. All right, we cannot in our fleshly minds, if you will, submit to God's law. We're innately rebellious. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Okay, this next sentence is going to be pretty impactful. If you're not familiar with pneumatology, the study of the Spirit starts with a P. If you're not familiar with the Holy Spirit of God and everything that he represents and what, and what he is, how integral he is to the daily walk of the Christian, the fellowship of the saints, the presence of God on the earth today, for crying out loud, this next verse is going to rock you, and that's good. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. We have to admire Paul's total honesty here, don't we? I want us to imitate it. 
Are you a really well-behaved church kid? Like, do you have your hair combed really tightly to the side? Like, you never style your hair that way throughout the rest of the week, but you like, man, you really put on the clip-on tie and snap the suspenders and shine your shoes and stow away your sin and put on a presentable face. Are there any church kids out there? You've never genuinely confessed sin to your small group. I'm calling for an all-out revolt among the well-behaved church kids in the context of your small group. In the name of honesty and integrity, I want us to imitate exactly what Paul has just done here. Admit what he struggles with in beautiful candor and then arrive together at Romans chapter eight. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there's no condemnation, there ought to be a sense of candor and honesty and every small group of Highlands Community Church that would make an AA group blush. Because unlike AA, we have atoning grace and a spirit who transforms souls completely. May we, church kids, lash out against the fakeness that would make hypocrites of us all. I want you, I want you in imitation of exactly what Paul has done in chapter seven, confessing everything he struggles with, 14 through 25, to get rid of the tightened collar, all right? To spike our hair into mohawks because that's what it actually looks like and that's the real you. To lay bare before the people in your group the things you struggle with, just like Paul has done for us right here. James chapter five says, confess your sins to one another, therefore you may be healed. So confess every last one of your sins to your group that you may be healed of every last one of your sins. It is not calling for a cataloging of the gory details, but an open honesty like what Paul has demonstrated for us in Romans chapter seven. I'm calling for a Sunday school kid riot here. I want you to enter into your next time with your group and take your mask off. If you've been feeling isolated and lonely and disconnected from other people while putting on a stupid mask that disguises who you actually are, good. You did this to yourself. You're not being honest with anybody, but no more, no more. Rip off the clip on and throw it away. Take your penny loafers and cover them in lighter fluid and set them ablaze, man. It's time to be honest with your small group the way that Paul is honest with us in this text. May we as a church have a fellowship that is marked with sanctified authenticity. No more well-behaved church kids. Instead, may we come together, confess our sins to one another, know exactly what we're struggling with, and lift each other up. And then as you do this, even if you're the only one in the schoolyard spinning your blazer over your head, good. That's the beginning of the revolt. That's the most bold thing you could do in Christ Jesus. Confess your sins. Watch what's going to happen. You're not the only one in your group struggling with that. Your group's going to surround you. They're going to come upon you in love. We belong to one another, just like this text says. And they're going to remind you of Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every sin you've ever committed in your your past and your present or your future will not be counted against you because Jesus is the sin offering. Just as the Old Testament precedent set, our sins were cast upon him such that he was sinless but was made to be sin himself. And he, Jesus, taking our sins upon the cross, nailed them there. And by his resurrection, we have hope for deliverance from them all. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took our condemnation and nailed it to the cross. So confess 
your sins to one another in your small group that you may be healed. You can openly, honestly say exactly this. Look, I don't understand what I do, okay? I have this desire. I wanna do what God wants me to do. But then right there, when I'm trying to do what God wants me to do, there's this other part of me that's present that's dragging me back down into the grave. Other people say, I know exactly what that's like. I know exactly what that's like. You're not the only one who struggles with this. And they're gonna remind you, guess what? It's okay. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we, in an application of the overarching candor and confession of Paul in Romans chapter seven, imitate that in the context of our small group culture and then remind each other of the beautiful message of hope in Romans chapter eight. But I wanna close by speaking to the one who's far from God. Are you currently dead in your sins? You've tried to find life in other things and none of them is satisfied. There's not a single substance in this world that can fill the void in your soul. I told you at the beginning, I was gonna offer you hope, audacious hope amidst the global onslaught of fear. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ alone offers you life because it is Christ alone who did this atoning work for us. I wanna review the, the closing words because it is beautiful. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. This is not a drill. It is precisely that spirit of God that is drawing upon your heart to call you from death to life. Do you believe that Jesus is? is the atoning sacrifice. Would you right now pray with me? Romans 10, nine says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray God's word out to God together. Members of Highlands Community Church, pray a similar prayer along with me. This past weekend, praise God. Somebody shared with me this grandmother led her grandchild to Christ using these exact same five verses. Let's pray together God's word out to God that though you are dead in sin, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would raise you from the dead right where you sit. Pray with me now. God, I believe, John three sixteen. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, Romans three twenty three. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, Romans 6, 23, I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe, John 14, 6, Jesus, I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is raising me from my spiritual death and my sin. Thank you, Jesus. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. And for good measure, proclaim it in the comments right now. Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.